Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Sample Hour. Very happy to bring you today's guest. His name is Dan Flores, and there's actually a link in the show notes so you guys can check out all of his other awesome books that he wrote. Um, today, I've, I'm, I'm having him on to discuss his most recent book, Coyote America, Natural and Supernatural History. Um, I had a lot of fun talking with Dan. Um, I was happy that he, he took the time of his day to come on and talk to me about coyotes. If you guys haven't checked out Coyote America yet, I highly recommend it. There is It is on Audible. Um, but anyways, I had a lot of fun talking to him, and hopefully I can get him back on sometime in the future to talk about American Serengeti when I'm done reading that book as well. Um, if you guys uh, are having coyotes move into your area, one thing Dan really stressed that um, I don't know if it was conveyed as much as, as I would like it to be on the podcast. but Because I asked him about it after the show. It was like a thought came in my head. But like coyotes are new to, to Ohio and Columbus. And, and there's if you Google, I Googled it like coyotes, Columbus, Ohio. And it's like former Marine snipers trying to, to reduce coyote populations. And the thing is, is that it, the more people shoot them, the more they're going to breed. And coyotes are going to recommend, are going to, um, they're going to uh, regulate their own, um, their own population. So there's no point in trying to shoot them. You can only hope to live with them. So with that being said, guys, I uh, just want to give a shout out to the affiliates. First and foremost, I would like to shout out Nature's Image Farm. So use code word sample and save ten percent. The website launch actually just came today. So actually yesterday, which was Thursday. So, But you could be listening to this at any time. So if you want, um, you can save 10% um, on anything there. There's still craft pork. And now you can see all of the nursery stock at uh, Nature's Image Farm, and you can save 10%. Also, newfarmsupply.com. Use code word sample. You can save 20% on anything that they have on their website. And then finally, last but not least, if you do want to... Um, if you do want to become a small-scale farmer, I highly recommend ProfitableUrbanFarming.com. Uh, if you click on the first link in the show notes, you can actually save $100. And then the second link is just for the payment plan. So that being said, guys, I hope you enjoy the show. I just hit record. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining. Uh, I'm honored here to have uh, on this author. I just read his book. I heard it. Actually, heard Joe Rogan talking about it on a podcast. So I, I checked it out and uh, listened to it on Audible and, and a few short. I think I listened to it in about three days. I was having so much fun listening to it. Um, Mr. Dan Flores. Um, Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, Drew, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, it's it's a pleasure. And uh, recently, um, you know, you released a couple books. I haven't read American Serengeti yet, but I'm I'm, I'm going to probably purchase that and read that. But, you know, I want to have you on to talk about Coyote America. It was so, um, for me personally, and I, I kind of I shared this in an email. Like, I, I grew up in Ohio, and I remember when I was a kid, 
really only seeing, you know, Wiley E. Coyote and just thinking like, well, why is he Wiley? And then like learning what the word meant and then getting, as I got older and I, and I told you I was going to let my dogs out one morning and there was a dead skunk in my backyard and I don't know it killed the skunk, but it looked like, looked like it was some sort of dog, but there was no dog around me or any of my neighbor's dogs that were sprayed by a skunk. So the only thing I could assume was it looked like a coyote had bit off more than it could chew. Um, huh. and I, I don't know if coyotes like that's an animal. I could be way off, but, uh, and then I was kind of like surprised. And that's when I first found out, like, cause somebody said, Oh, it's probably a coyote. They've been coming into this area. And, uh, your book is so fascinating because yeah. I mean, I love just the story of, of how the, the coyote migrated and everything else like that. And, uh, so, so yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, so what, what would kind of, uh, do you want to kind of give like a quick, tell your story about what, what inspired you to write this book and, and tell the story of, of the coyote? Well, I would say that what inspired me to write it is probably a, an experience somewhat similar to yours because I grew up in Louisiana in a place that, uh, wasn't supposed to have coyotes, shouldn't have had coyotes by, uh, what everything that, the mammologists were telling us back in the early 1960s and at the age of about 14 uh i started seeing them in louisiana and when i first saw one and i tell the story of this experience uh in, in my book um uh, i didn't know exactly what this animal was and there's in fact probably a pretty good chance that the animal i saw was a coyote red wolf hybrid because it was a an animal with really long legs. But I wrote the Louisiana Fish and Wildlife people uh, to tell them that I thought I'd seen a wolf in Caddo Parish, Louisiana. And in a couple of weeks, I got a letter back from them telling me that probably what I'd seen was a coyote because coyotes at that time, they said, were beginning to colonize Louisiana. So that was, at the age of 14, that was a, a pretty fascinating thing to have happened. I mean, it was a little bit like, uh, you know, rounding a corner in New Orleans and uh, and confronting a moose on the street corner or something. <laughs> yeah, it's that, that just makes sense. An animal. Yeah, it's just an animal that, you know, I wouldn't have expected in the bayous and among the Spanish moss of where I grew up. But suddenly here this animal was, and clearly I started paying attention to it then and began to realize that coyotes were expanding out of the West uh, into the south and into the east. And, I mean, as I went through my life, and, I mean, I got a, a Ph.D. in uh, the history of the American West and ended up getting teaching jobs uh, in various western states, in West Texas, finally in Montana. I live in uh, New Mexico outside Santa Fe now. And so I spent almost all my life from the time I was 14 years old really kind of surrounded by coyotes and knew through the years that at some point I would probably write a book about them and try to answer really my own questions about these animals. And what I ended up discovering was the biography of an animal that is maybe one of the most distinctively American creatures that's out there in the world. I mean, its evolutionary origins go back more than 5 million years in North America. It's an animal unlike wolves that never left North America. Coyotes have been here 
ever since they evolved and they emerged into their present form about 800,000 years ago. So I was really fascinated by the fact that this is an indigenous American animal and that if indeed we want to be Americans and think of ourselves as true natives of North America, this is a creature that we can learn a lot about because it has been here for so long adapting to this landscape. I mean, as you know from listening to uh, the book, I even argue in Coyote America that the coyote's howl is kind of the original national anthem yeah. uh, of North America. Yeah, so it's a, it's basically a biography that I ended up writing, this story of the animal from its evolution through the contemporary period where it's obviously colonizing all over the country. Yeah, it's uh, it's so fascinating even to – and it was interesting too when I was talking to people, um, and, it, and it's something that uh, – you cover in the book, and I heard you know Steve Rinella talk about it when you were on the Meat Eater podcast, and it's the difference between like I've always called them coyotes because I never hunted them. And it was like I only knew coyotes from Wiley mm-hmm. Coyote, and then uh, yeah. my friends, you know, I told one of my friends, and he grew up more in the country, and he goes, "Oh, coyotes! Oh, I didn't." And I was telling him about um, you know the the thing that's that's most fascinating to me is is that the howl is is actually a roll call in a sense and in the way that that they'll change their breeding patterns which is just super fascinating and it's uh it's so and it's it's interesting too because uh how resilient the coyotes are and you and you talk about that too but i think you know the the difference in between coyotes and and coyote and and just kind of the history of of the of their name because they were originally called prairie prairie wolves as well if you want to Talk about that. Well, yeah, that's one of the the things I tackled in the book because uh, obviously if you go around the country interviewing people, which I I did as I was working on the book, um, and I sort of knew this before. uh, I mean, people use two different names in modern America. We use two different names for them. We call them either coyotes or coyotes, and – I tried to track down the origins of those two distinctive uh, ways of referring to the animals. And that led me back in time, all the way back to the Aztecs, really, because the word from which both coyote and coyote come from is actually a Nahuatl Indian word. And Nahuatl is the language that the Aztecs spoke. And the Aztecs, who knew coyotes a thousand years or more ago because coyotes had expanded from the southwest where they had evolved all the way down into the vicinity of present-day Mexico City. And the Aztecs uh, referred to them in their language as coyote. And the word was spelled C-O-Y-O-T-L, but the L in the Nahuatl language is a silent L. And so the name would have been pronounced coyote. And What made this kind of fascinating in terms of how Americans ended up pronouncing it is that, I mean, the coyote is not an animal that's found in Europe. And so when Europeans began coming to North America 500 years ago, they had experience with with wolves, with bears, with foxes, with all kinds of animals that are in common between North America and Europe. But 
they had no experience whatsoever with coyotes. This was a brand new creature for them. And so the first Americans really to confront them and to write a written description of them that uh, became a part of the cultural record in the United States was Lewis and Clark, who first encountered them in the fall of 1804. And they don't know exactly what they are. They see them for a couple of weeks and think that they're maybe this is maybe some new kind of fox that they've encountered out on the edge of the Great Plains. Uh, this happened in what is present-day Nebraska. And after one of the members of the party shot one of them, and they had it on the ground in front of them looking at it, they realized that this was not a fox, that it was in fact some kind of wolf, some new version of a wolf that they hadn't seen before, and so they called it a prairie wolf. And for most English speakers from the time of Lewis and Clark, this is 1804, through, and I've seen this term in use as late as about 1915 or so, most Americans referred to coyotes as prairie wolves. But when we got out into the west, into New Mexico, around Santa Fe at the beginning or the middle of the 19th century, say the 1840s and 1850s, these same Americans began encountering people in the Southwest who knew this old Aztec name. And there were, at that time, of course, Spanish settlers in New Mexico who had Hispanicized the word, the Nahuatl word, coyote, into coyote. And so... We have Americans who first hear the word coyote being applied to the prairie wolf. But there were at the same time in New Mexico a bunch of mountain men, Kit Carson kind of people, who hung out with Kit Carson from places like Missouri and Tennessee and some of them from Ohio and Illinois too, who I think must have thought that coyote was a little bit too fancy. And so they simplified the word to coyote and took it back to rural America. So we ended up in America with two different versions of the of the word. We finally abandoned wolf. And people kind of on the coast, on the East Coast and on the West Coast and in the Southwest tend to call the animal coyote. People in rural America and especially people in the South and the Midwest and even in the rural West tend to say coyote. Yeah, it's so interesting, and a lot of it, too, has to do with who shoots at the animal and who doesn't, like the people that call it coyote. Well, yeah. It's because they, they hunt them people, down and they know, shoot as you, as you remember, in, in the podcast I did with Stephen on his Meat Eater podcast, one of the things Stephen said is that, well, nobody who ever shoots one calls it a coyote. Yeah. If you shoot it, you trap it, uh, you call it a coyote. Uh, it never has that three-syllable name if you're actually going out and trying to kill. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting, and it and it's and it's interesting too to me because there's like the, um, the just kind of the history between you know the the like how you kind of show in the book too about why where our fear of coyotes comes from. Not saying that I mean you you shouldn't be cautious of them but i think people think that they're these vicious hunters but to me they've just always been opportunistic like they're not they're not huge animals they're smart animals and they're survivors and they and they and they and and you 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 point out in the book too that they're 
they're very they're very they're a lot like humans which is interesting too because i remember somebody said to me the things you dislike most about something are usually the things that you remind you of yourself that you don't like and i and i <laughs> and i think about that with coyotes it's like cuz they uh the the story of your friend who was like hired to go shoot it and he just in the, he found the coyote a coyote and it just just looked at him and was just like yeah we're, i'm here i don't really care you're there and uh even uh my my buddy he like he thinks they're cool too like you know like like i was telling you before um we started recording like you know most of my friends were like you know uh small scale farmers or farmsteaders and you know interestingly enough like my my one buddy he lives more out in like the hills uh like eastern um kind of just east of me in columbus ohio and he lost like 200 birds in a few nights and through his trail cams, I mean, it, I think a majority of his chickens and ducks are actually killed by like raccoons and other things. Like there were coyotes that got mm-hmm. them, but it just anything that's yeah. opportunistic, like, okay, if you're, if you're farming birds, smaller animals that eat those things or want to eat those things are going to come and kill them. And I, and I don't, and, and that's, that's more so how I see coyotes versus you know, they're going to kill your kids and all this other crazy stuff that people say. Um, and because uh, I, I sent you something before, like this just recently happened in uh, in a suburb of Columbus, Groveport, where people are calling the police and asking them to come and hunt the coyotes because they think that the coyotes are, are killing their their dogs, their small dogs or their cats. Um, and it's uh, and it they are there, but it's, if, if they are killing the small dogs, it's, it's like you allude in the book, it's mainly because of territory. I don't know if you want to, I, I talked a lot about a lot of stuff there. Sorry about that, Dan. I'm excited to talk to you, but if you kind of want to tackle some of that stuff there. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best with some of it, Drew. Uh, so, you know, I would say that as sort of a lead in to uh, the questions that you tossed out just then, um, one thing I would like to sort of point out to your listeners is that this is an animal that has a biography in North America, as I mentioned, that goes back 5 million years. And what that means is that for at least the last 15,000 or so years, it's an animal that's been interacting with human beings. Ever since people began colonizing North America, 15 to 20,000 years ago, one of the animals they encountered here was the coyote. And so part of the biography of this animal is that it goes for nearly 15,000 years interacting on a daily basis with Indian people living uh, in the western part of the United States without ever being attacked or pursued or killed are really bothered much. In fact, native people looked at coyotes and decided that they had so many similarities to us that in fact, coyotes served in their mythologies and their religions as a deity figure, which is why we have, uh, as I write in the book, the oldest literature from North America going back 10,000 years are these wonderful folktale coyote stories, literally hundreds of them that have been left to us through oral tradition. And finally, back in the 20th century, folklorists and ethnologists began writing them down. So we have all these wonderful stories about 
a time when the coyote was basically a teacher of human nature, which is what all these stories are about. But the point I want to make is that these animals go for 15,000 years without being harassed by humans. And then a couple of hundred years ago, when we Americans began looking at them and began sort of conflating them with gray wolves and becoming concerned that the animal, that coyotes are going to be a danger to agriculture or to livestock or to human life. I mean, we just sort of in a moment's time flip over the whole biography of these animals from one where they're revered and respected and observed for what they can teach us to the point where we start trying to kill them on sight. So we have about a last 200 year period where without any scientific evidence at all, really, until the 1930s, we just kind of decide that this is an animal that like gray wolves and like mountain lions and like bears, uh, we're going to try to wipe off the face of the earth. And whereas gray wolves are going to succumb to that, I mean, we've basically by the 1920s, we've managed to wipe most of the gray wolves, the red wolves of the south and eastern wolves too. We managed to kill off most of these large canines. Coyotes, for some reason, people thought at least, for some reason that was inexplicable to them, somehow coyotes, we don't seem to be dying off. We don't seem to be able to kill them off. And so what I try to argue in the book is that there are very important evolutionary explanations for why that happened. And those evolutionary explanations have to do with the fact that coyotes had co-evolved alongside gray wolves for 20 or 30,000 years before human beings were ever on the scene. And they evolved their intelligence uh, their ability to survive persecution from being the small dog that was being beaten up and often killed by the big dogs, by great wolves. So when the wolves were gone and we stepped up and started trying to arrest them and indeed trying to eradicate them, they were able to bring into play all these evolutionary adaptations that enabled, had enabled them to survive gray wolf persecution. And although it was a mystery to people up until the 1950s, biologists finally did enough work on coyotes between the 1930s and the 1950s to realize that when they're persecuted and harassed, coyotes have the ability to call on several evolutionary adaptations that enable them not only to survive, but it causes them to actually colonize and to spread their range and to increase their population uh, whenever they're persecuted. And one of the things you mentioned in uh, your questions was about how they use their howls to take a roll call or a census of other coyotes. So one of the things that coyote howls are doing is coyote packs are attempting to determine how dense the coyote population is in a given area. And if human pressure is causing the numbers to go down. If we're killing large numbers of them and they're not hearing howls coming back at them, then this suite of evolutionary adaptations go into place where 
they start having larger litters in order to produce more pups that can take advantage of the resources that are out there. They're able to get their pups to adulthood without uh, any trouble at all because they're so suddenly as a surfeit of resources for coyotes to take advantage of. They start colonizing whenever they're persecuted. They will scatter. I devote some time in the book to describing a phenomenon called fission fusion, which is something that very few mammals around the world possess, but we humans have it, and so do coyotes, and it means the ability to function as a social animal, in the case of coyotes, as a pack animal, but it also means that when you're pressured, if you're a fission fusion animal, you can go into fission mode, and the packs will break apart and the animals will scatter as singles and pairs, and they often will colonize in the course of that. And so they will spread their range. Uh, and so they have this uh, set of abilities to survive persecution. And one of the ironies of the fact that we start trying to wipe them out in the early 20th century is that the more we employ that tactic of trying to eradicate them, trying to poison them into extinction, the more it tends to expand their populations and to send them colonizing. So the reason they were colonizing Louisiana when I was growing up uh, in the 1960s, and the reason they're in Ohio now, and the reason they're in all 49 states, Hawaii being the only one that's an exception, is largely due to the fact that we wiped out wolves, which cleared a niche for them. And by persecuting them and trying to eradicate them, we scattered them across the landscape. And so our efforts to try to get rid of them have ironically done exactly the opposite of that. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And I remember there's there's uh there was a part in the book you were you were talking to uh I think it was an apartment that's kind of uh, I forget who's in charge of it now. There, there's so many interesting things in that book. But basically what they were trying to do was uh, uh, make it so the males couldn't breed and the males found a way to keep breeding. I forget what they did. They put some drug in it and they said, yeah, the coyote outsmarted us again. And it's uh, it's just so fascinating. Like they're so resilient. And and I, I don't see how it, – it, it to me it's just something that you should respect. I, I think it's just something that – like it's interesting, like as like an advocate of coyotes, uh, you know, the more people kill them, the more there's going to be of them. But it's just kind of like uh, I heard you saying, I think it was with uh, uh, David or uh, on the Rewild Yourself that it's kind of like a moral, it's more of a moral thing. Like why why should we be trying to kill an animal that isn't really a huge threat, isn't a huge, isn't a threat to us um, that really enjoys life. And, and, yeah. it, and it, and it was something that really resonated with me because it's like, you know, people are people bit like farmers who complain about them or people in the country that complain about them. It's like, you know, why don't you just do things to try to prevent them from messing with, with your stuff? I mean, it's, you know, you can only, you can do so much. I think, you know, for my friends that raise chickens and ducks, like they know that there's predators out there that want to eat them. Things love to kill chickens and ducks. And most of the time, like, like I was telling you before, it's for us in this area, it's, it's like hawks and, uh, and larger yeah. birds. It's not, I mean, the, yeah. the, the coyotes sit out there and we, and we can see their tracks from when they come up and 
look at this little where we put the birds at night. Um, but you know, realistically they're, they're not, they don't want to bother you. They just like, it, I think, uh, I think coyotes recognize humans as an easy source of food as well. And, but you, you kind of alluded in the book as well that coyotes don't really eat what most people think they eat. Um, I don't know if you want to, if you, if you want to cover that and, and anything else I might have spurred there with my, my comments there, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so the agency you're referring to is it's today called Wildlife Services, by the way. Okay. And uh, that's a federal, yeah, that's a federal agency that still kills about seventy to eighty thousand coyotes a year on behalf of uh, of agriculture. Um, and this is the same agency that originated back in the beginning of the 20th century. It was called originally the Bureau of Biological Survey, and uh, that's the agency that eradicated the wolves in North America. And once the wolves were gone by the 1920s, they decided that the coyote was actually the arch predator of our time, as they call it. And so uh, actually created a laboratory um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, later it moved to Denver, called the Eradication Methods Lab, and got Congress to pass a bill in 1931, the Animal Damage Control Act, to give them $10,000 or $10 million, I'm sorry, over 10 years' time in order to use the poisons that they created at this eradication lab to completely wipe coyotes off the face of the earth. And what that agency did then was to invent a whole new suite of poisons during World War II and buy the time of the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, when the agency had morphed into wildlife services, uh, they were still killing, as I said, something like 70, 80,000 animals a year, most of them in the West. But it's a, a very been a very purposeful thing. And what? So here's to go to another point that you just made. Here's the sort of shocking part of that. The federal government decided in the early 1930s to eradicate coyotes, primarily using poisons. At that time, there had not been a single biologist go out and actually study the natural history of coyotes to try to determine what they ate. Everybody just assumed that they ate the same kinds of things that wolves ate. So in the 1930s, these folks from this federal agency are arguing that coyotes are going to wipe out all the game animals in North America. We're going to lose all our white-tailed deer, all our mule deer, all our pronghorn antelope, all of our elk. They're going to be wiped out by coyotes. And so they send a couple of biologists uh, who happen to be brothers Olas and Adolf Murray out to do studies of the first studies ever done of the coyote diet in the 1930s. And Olas Murray studies them in Jackson Hole uh, National Elk Refuge, and his brother Adolf studies coyotes in Yellowstone National Park. And they both published the results of their studies at the end of the 1930s. And what they discover, of course, is that coyotes actually eat rats, mice, gophers, insects, 
they are predators of mostly very small animals and mostly animals that are harmful to humans and to human animals. The fact that they eat rats and mice is one of the reasons, as you suggested a minute ago, why they hang out around us because our houses and everything that humans produce, we attract rats and mice to our habitations. And so that's one of the reasons coyotes tend to hang around us. And one of the reasons they've moved into cities in the last few decades is because there are so many rats in particular living in American cities. But it wasn't until like 1940 that we even knew what these animals that we'd been trying to wipe out for the last 30 years actually ate. And to reference that morality point you made, um, that came from Adolf Murray and his study of coyotes in Yellowstone Park, whereas he described, and I, I wrote about this in the book, I actually even wrote a an op-ed for the New York Times where I led off with this story. What he described was standing by a game trail in Yellowstone National Park one morning and watching a coyote come towards him trotting down this game trail and he could see it like about two or three hundred yards away and as it was getting close to him he could see that it was doing something that it struck him as odd it was tossing its head up and down and as it got closer he began to realize what he was seeing was this coyote with a twig of sagebrush in its mouth that it was tossing up into the air five six eight feet up into the air and catching when it came down and then it would trot along the game trail a little farther and toss this sprig of sagebrush up in the air again and catch it and Adolf Murray just stood there transfixed as this animal trotted right by him playing with this sprig of sagebrush and what struck him at the end of seeing this was that he had just witnessed an animal that as he thought was in love with life with being alive yeah. and yeah, and so he went back and as he wrote this study, one of the things he wondered about was what was going on that we we Americans were so transfixed by the idea of wiping out this animal that actually did very little harm and was in love with with life, with being alive. He ended up, in fact, he and his brother both resigned from the government service and joined uh, private conservation organizations because they thought the government was trying to convince the whole country to hate these animals that, in fact, the science demonstrated we shouldn't be trying to wipe out in the first place. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And the, the funny thing is, too, like I've, I've heard you talk um, which is something that just is so appalling is, you know, Utah, after the study went out and the study showed what, you know, coyotes eat and everything like that, that they're not, it wasn't it mule deer that they're trying to say that the coyotes are, are eating. Yeah. And, it's, and it, what's silly to me, and I don't, I, I don't hunt personally, not that I have anything against it. I might hunt some white tail here in the future, but you know, I've seen plenty of videos of a deer going against a small dog, and it's not pretty for that dog. I I don't see, I don't see like that happening because coyotes are they'll get close to you, but if they, what I I mean, just even from us like 
if when we see them, like just even if you get close to them, they kind of disappear. Like they don't want a confrontation with you. They just want to. They just want you to know that they're there and know that you're there. It's kind of like an interest from our 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 experience. That's been our experience with it, and it's um. So I, I just uh, whenever I heard that that people say that, and maybe I guess maybe a, if they attacked in packs or something like that, I guess I could see that. But man, coyotes aren't big. I just see a deer just stomping it and it being brutal. Like if anybody YouTube's a video of a deer and a dog, it's not a pretty scene, man. It's it's pretty it's pretty upsetting. Um, as like yeah. a do- as a dog lover, so it's just so it's just so silly to me. Um, well, the other thing, of course, that we have to remember, and I'm afraid we didn't back in the 20th century, especially, is that we're newcomers to North America. Yeah, these game animals and predators like coyotes and wolves and mountain lions have been interacting in an equilibrium for tens of thousands of years before we were ever on the scene. And, you know, it's nothing but human hubris to arrive and say, okay, I got to fix all this because these poor game animals are going to be wiped out by, by predators. I mean, pronghorn antelope, for example, have been, their fawns have been preyed on by coyotes for probably 800,000 years. Pronghorns have been here for longer than that, and coyotes emerged in their present form about that long ago. And so one of the things we know about pronghorn antelope is that their adaptation to having their fawns preyed on by coyotes is that they, all the females now, have twins. They basically have one and a spare. And so the idea is that coyotes may get one of our fawns, but we're going to at least have one survive. It's the kind of adaptation that's been going on with all these creatures for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before we ever showed up. But, you know, we arrive in, in our, uh, our sort of ego-driven assessment that the world centers around us. We decide in the 20th century that we're going to step into the middle of all this and we know what's best. Of course, and we claim we know what's best without ever doing any science to try to figure out what the relationship is between these animals. And so we just do this kind of short-sighted, uh, no facts behind it, just a kind of a knee-jerk interaction with animals that, in fact, have not needed our help uh, for many, many thousands of years. It's, it's just kind of something that I think we need to get over. Now, I will say uh, for people like in Ohio and uh, states in the east and the south and on the Atlantic seaboard that are just now having coyotes appear in your midst over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, it's going to take a little bit more time to come to terms with living amongst them in a way that people in the West have been doing for a very long time. I mean, for example, in Los Angeles, there have been coyotes in Los Angeles ever since that city was founded. And to be sure, Los Angeles attracts a lot of people from other parts of the world who have never been around coyotes. But in most parts of the West, people are used to coyotes being around. They know how, uh, especially uh, in rural areas like where I live, I mean, none of these homeowners around me is afraid for their dogs or their cats or afraid that 
coyotes are going to get their children. Nobody worries about that sort of thing because we all know what to do. We know that you don't let your small dogs and your cats out at night. I mean, you don't let a three-year-old toddler walk around in the front yard at 6 a.m. You just take precautions because there is a little small predator in the world that trots through the yard. And as long as you pay attention and take a few precautions, you get to not only pursue your normal life with your pets and your children, but you also get to have a life where there's a little bit of original American wildness in it, where you get the fun of actually seeing a little small wolf trot through the backyard. I mean, that's a that's a very exciting thing to get to have. It's a lot more exciting to me than getting to have a life where we've wiped all the wildness and all the Americanness out of our day-to-day existence. Yeah, and a nice thing, too, that you pointed out, since we have just a plethora of them, is that coyotes eat Canadian geese, and I can't stand Canadian geese. (laughs) They just poop everywhere, and their teeth feel like sandpaper. Um, But uh, I... I, I, rats. What's that? Yeah. And and rats. And rats, yeah. I... I I 100% agree. Uh, One question I did want to ask, though, because, you know, you cover in the book with hybridization, um, and you go over that quite a bit with the red wolf and, like, the the atrocities that went on with the red wolf. But being here in Ohio, um, you know, we're we're kind of in a weird space. We're not quite Midwest. We're not quite East. We're the last in the Eastern time zone um, with with half of Michigan. Um, You know, for the coyotes that come here, how likely is it that they've uh, bred with the eastern wolves, and then how has that changed the aggression? Because I know that there was one attack um, that that like of of some uh, some girl in Canada, and it, it right. and by coyotes, and, and and your your whole theory was it, it it could be because of the hybridization of the wolves, and maybe they're more aggressive. Like, is there has there been many studies on on the effects of like aggression with coyotes with the hybridization, or is it the coyote tend to be more the dominant features. Well, I think for one thing in Ohio, you're, you don't have to worry about it because uh, what remnant wolf populations are still around uh, are east of you. They're in eastern Canada, a uh, few in upstate New York, and then there are the red wolves down in the south in the Carolinas, although they, of course, are very carefully kept away from coyotes because Red wolves are an endangered species, and the fear is that coyote genes will swamp the gene pool of red wolves. Uh, So most of the hybridization that's going on is going on uh, in eastern Canada and in upstate New York. Although I will say that what the real fear has been, it's not been so much a fear of the koi wolf, an animal that's mostly coyote but also part eastern wolf. Primarily because, like coyotes, wolves don't really have humans as part of their prey template either. I mean, we you really have to struggle. I mean, and I've I've written about wolves a good bit, and I mean, I was trained as a historian, so I've looked at a lot of historical accounts, and I mean, you just really have to struggle to find an example in North American history where wolves ever attack human beings. Literally, the only times I've ever seen instances of it is when wolves have been rabid, when they've been bitten by a rabid raccoon or a fox or a skunk. 
and then a wolf, there will be an account of a wolf running through an Indian village or a trapper camp or something and biting people. But so my point is, wolves are not really aggressive towards human beings either. What the fear has been, has been not not aggression coming from the coyote side of the mix or from the wolf side of the mix, but that coyote wolf hybrids often have included some admixture of dog hybridization as well. And dogs are much more aggressive towards human beings than either wild wolves or wild coyotes are. And so the assumption about the animals that attacked that young woman in Eastern Canada back in 2009 is that they probably had some genetic admixture of dog and dogs are not afraid of human beings the way wolves and coyotes are and it allows them to be more aggressive so um, i mean that's yeah it's a possibility you know i gotta say i've spent my entire life around coyotes around coyote wolf hybrids in louisiana when i was growing up and then around coyotes in the west as an adult it's never really occurred to me to be afraid of these animals I mean, I see them at a distance of 25 and 30 feet fairly regularly here in New Mexico. I do try to make sure that they stay wild, especially the animals that are moving into cities and towns. I think what people have to do is that if you see an animal that stands its ground and doesn't normally run away, which is what coyotes do when they see people, if it stands its ground, then you act aggressive toward it, throw a rock at it, try to, as I say in the book, what we want to do is to keep them, if if nothing else, thinking that we're too weird for them to trust. Yeah. And so yeah, we want to keep them wild. We don't want them to be habituated. We never, you never want to feed them. I mean, the few times there have been instances uh, in places like Los Angeles, where people fed coyotes in their backyards, that's always produced a disaster, ultimately. So you don't want to feed them. You want to keep them wild. Um, you know, and uh, you sent me a clip from Ohio earlier today about someone who's got a pet coyote. I will say that, you know, our dogs came from wolves. So certain wolves at a period 14, 15,000 years ago chose domestication they chose to be domesticated and hang out with us coyotes never made that choice they've never chosen domestication and every instance i've ever seen with a couple of exceptions where people try to raise coyotes when they get to be about eight or nine or ten months old they start challenging their owners for dominance and if the owner is not able to demonstrate dominance way they keep that coyote in a subordinate position they will, it'll get nasty really fast. So they don't make good pets. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to have a pet coyote. I, I thought it was interesting. Everybody, like, because in that clip I sent you, there's just this irrational fear. And everyone's like, well, there's just too many around. I don't know why they want more. And then the guy, I think the guy ended up getting evicted too. It was a few years old. Um, yeah. It's, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea personally. I think I'd rather have a, a dog personal butts or a cat yeah, uh, yeah indeed yeah and, and something else you talk about which is why they've come so close to the cities and why there are coyotes are in the cities 
are because a lot of us don't realize that there used to be wild dogs in most cities. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, yeah. and I thought that was interesting too, um, because it's where, what it's just so fascinating because we've people's fear of coyotes are wanting to exterminate them. And, and just like what humans have done out of convenience have just paved the way for coyotes to get closer to us. So, yeah, well, I mean, what, yeah, the story I described is that, you know, we used to, we, and we don't have a memory of this in our historical memory, but the truth is up until about a hundred years ago, 115 or 20 years ago, most American cities had no restrictions on feral dogs. And so there were dogs roaming all over cities. And so I used that history as a way to explain why coyotes weren't, for instance, moving into American cities, especially in the West, a hundred years ago. And the reason was because that niche was already full. There were already packs of roaming feral dogs in cities. And whenever we began, starting with Boston in the 1860s and most other major American cities followed suit over the next 30 or 40 years, when we started instituting dog pounds and dog catchers and leash laws and forbidding people to allow their dogs to run loose in town, I mean, what that basically did was to open up cities to the infiltration by wild canids, by coyotes. And so as dogs were put up and put in dog pounds and kept in backyards and kept on leashes, it made it possible for coyotes to begin to infiltrate around the margins of cities. And because they've always lived among us, I mean, they were living among uh, in, around and on the margins of Indian villages for thousands of years, because they've always done that, attracted by the rats and the mice that our habitations generate, as soon as the dogs were put in dog pounds, then coyotes began infiltrating into cities. I mean, now we think there are as many as 5,000 coyotes in Los Angeles. There are probably as many as 3,500 or 4,000 in Chicago. Um, Denver thinks that right now it's got between 125 and 150 packs of coyote, uh, coyotes in greater Denver. Uh, so, and they're, of course, now they're colonizing New York City. So they are able to exist among us, uh, which to me is a very exciting thing. It means you get to see these small, wild North American wolves right in the middle of an urban setting. But we do have to be careful about changing our behaviors towards our small animals and also, of course, as I said, keeping coyotes wild and not habituating them so they associate uh, food sources in our backyards like pet food or bird food or something uh, that will attract them to their yard, to our yards. We've got to make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen and that they stay wild. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I, I agree. Um, and, uh, so, and we're almost at an hour and something else I think is really cool. And, uh, and, and it'd be, and it'd be great to have you on again to talk about, uh, American Serengeti, uh, when I when I read that, but um, something that you're you're kind of championing champion, championing and really helping to promote is uh, re uh, recreating the American Serengeti. And there's like a foundation I've heard you you talk about that's 
that's getting uh, yeah. funding to repopulate. So if you've, I'd love to have you be able to talk about that and plug that on my show. So um, if you want to yeah, talk sure. about that. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. The book is called American Serengeti, The Last Big Animals of the Great Plains. And uh, it's not even been out a year. It came out about three or four months before the Coyote book did. And uh, it's the story of um, how the American Great Plains, until about 125 years ago, was actually the closest analogy to these great wildlife areas of East Africa, the Serengeti, the Maasai Mara, or even the the Veld of South Africa, places that are all now the settings of big conservation wildlife parks. Um, And we ended up wiping out all those animals uh, in North America. I mean, we eradicated between 20 and 30 million bison as everyone knows, but what a lot of people don't know is that in the same uh, flurry of activity, we wiped out uh, as many as 15 million pronghorn antelope, uh, as many as uh, 2 million gray wolves, probably as high as 50,000 grizzly bears that were out on the Great Plains up until about uh, the 1880s or so, probably 2 million wild horses that had run wild and occupied their old evolutionary niche on the Great Plains. And so we had these marvelous animals, this very African-like bestiary where uh, wild horses were playing the role of zebras and bison were playing the role of wildebeest and grizzly bears were sort of playing the role of lions and coyotes were playing the role of jackals. And we wiped it all out, completely destroyed it, ended up not creating any parks in order to preserve it on the American Great Plains. And there is now an organization in Montana called the American Prairie Reserve that is trying uh, with both public lands and private money in hopes of acquiring additional lands as much as 4 million acres of land, uh, ultimately, to try to rewild some part of the American Great Plains and recreate this American Serengeti. And I mean, I didn't write the book as uh, with the intent of promoting this project. I was uh, trying to write a historical uh, story about what we had done and what we had lost. But as I was working on the book, uh, I began to discover the work of the American Prairie Reserve and So I've been cooperating with them over the last several months. Uh, They've, in fact, been, I think, giving copies of my American Serengeti book to new members of the organization. Uh, And uh, they're very, very serious about this. They've raised uh, uh, about $125 million in the last 10 years in order to do this. Yeah, that'd be awesome to be able to go and and see. And I forget what you were saying. I mean, so if they can do what they want to do, it's going to be much bigger than uh, Yellowstone National Park, correct? It's going to be... Yeah, Yellowstone is 2.2 million acres. So this would be a a preserve that would be as big as 4 million, almost twice the size of of Yellowstone. Um, I mean, right now it's in its beginning stages. uh, And so we'll see where it goes. But to me, it's the most exciting conservation project that's uh in the american west right now yeah i 100 percent agree it's it's super cool to hear and um and i've i'm looking forward to reading your other book i think uh the the interesting story about 
horses, um, American horses, and how horses originally came from North America, but then they they moved yeah. over to Europe and and in Asia and evolved, and then somehow they died off here. And there's all these theories as to why you know Native American yeah. camels and horses died. So I'm looking forward to 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 reading that. And uh, and another thing I wanted to ask is, um, like we do have deserts here. Do you think if we took camels back to where they natively were from, that they would, that they could come and, and kind of thrive as quickly as horses did? Um, do you think that would be a possibility? Because I know, I think like they, they tried, like I, I was talking about that one book too about uh, American hippopotamus. And uh, I guess apparently a few people were trying to use camels in the American deserts and the camels yeah, were fine, true. but people thought it was weird or something like that. So if, if they were to introduce camels back to the American deserts, I mean, would it, would it just be like it is where they are now? Well, yeah, you're right. The, um, um, in the 1850s and 1860s, there were camels uh, introduced uh, in various spots in the West, mostly in the Southwest, in New Mexico and Arizona. And, um, I mean, some of them got loose and went feral and survived for 20 or 30 years. I mean, people, you know, uh, out in the wilds with guns, I mean, they see something and uh, most of the camels ended up getting shot basically in the 1880s and 1890s by people who either thought this was a strange animal and it would be fun to shoot it or maybe they were hungry. I don't know. But uh, the animals, without any protection, they basically were finally killed off. Now, I will say in contrast to the the situation with horses where horses uh, had undergone uh, relatively, especially horses that came from North Africa and Spain and got back into the American West, those animals were very close to the horses that had died out 8,000 years earlier in North America. And so it was the introduction of an animal that perhaps wasn't exactly the same as the animal that had died out, but very, very close. So close that I've talked to paleontologists who say they can hardly tell the difference in the skeletons between modern horses, Spanish horses especially, and the horses that were here in North America eight and 9,000 years ago. In the case of camels, though, the species of one-humped camels that were was here in North America 10,000 years ago and died out that species died out up and down the Americas. And so the camels that we have left now are the dromedaries, the ones from, from North Africa. And they're a rather different species of camel than the one that was here. So it wouldn't be as close a fit as was the case between uh, the horses that we reintroduced. But, you know, I mean, there's a, there was a, a famous uh, paleobiologist in Arizona named Paul Martin who argued for many years about rewilding the Americas with these animals that had survived elsewhere in the world uh, and that we had lost that had become extinct in North America. And there, you know, there's still people out there who, who talk about it. Uh, and camels is, is one of the ones they bring up. Yeah. And it's interesting. And we have deserts. It makes sense to ride camels in the desert. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I've never ridden a camel, so I don't know why I really would have a strong opinion about that. But, um, 
Well, anyways, Dan, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. I had a, I had a blast talking to you, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading uh, American Serengeti and any future books you write. Um, if if people, I know you're you don't uh, you know you you don't have a website. Um, you, you can you know people can follow your work through through the publisher, and you and you and you like to stay pretty you know wild yourself, and you know you live out in the country, but if people wanted to contact you or, or follow your work, what's the best way? Well, the best way is, uh, probably on Amazon. I've got, a, I do have an author page on Amazon, so you can type in the name of any of my books, Coyote America or American Serengeti, and that'll pull up the site for that particular book. But if you look on the site, there will be a link to the author page and that'll take you to, uh, an author page with a biography. And I, I don't, I will admit I don't keep uh, up with it that closely, but it does have uh, a listing of where I'm going to be speaking and bookstores I'm going to be in. Uh, I'm going to have to get on the stick and start entering some of those again because I've got about 10 speaking engagements in April around the country. But, uh, yeah, just go to Amazon and especially to my author page on, on Amazon and That'll enable you to see the other books that are out there. I've published 10 uh, over the years. Um, and uh, and uh, if I will get on the stick and let me be speaking, you can follow that too. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on. I'm sure all my listeners enjoyed uh, hearing you. And, and uh, yeah, guys, if you haven't already listened to or read or listened to Coyote America, I highly recommend it personally. Uh, it's super enjoyable. Uh, one thing that I didn't mention are the, the, the stories of coyote, um, which, which are just awesome. The, the ones, because you, you say it's both the biological and the, the both natural and supernatural bio, biography. Um, and those, yeah. those are so entertaining. And, uh, and, uh, so anyway, so thanks for coming on the show and, uh, everybody thanks for tuning in.